everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Multimedium. Very excited to have you guys here with us today. We are talking about Resident Evil. Ha ha ha. I should have done it like the yeah. intro guy from the game. Resident Evil. I forgot about that. Yeah. He's really cool. He is cool. Um, I'm Willie Gibbs. With me is Mr. Tim Long. Hey, Tim. <laughs> um, yeah, we're really excited to be here back for episode two of Multimedium to talk about Resident Evil, the original uh, the original game of the series, uh from 96 also going to be talking about uh the remake of the game as well because it's hard to talk about one without the other at this point i think they're both kind of uh they're not one and the same but they're so similar it's gonna be hard not to talk about them and then we're gonna be talking about the uh novelization of that first game called resident evil the umbrella conspiracy by uh by author sd perry stephanie daniel perry who's written a bunch of um Expanded universe books for things like Star Trek and, and various various uh, properties. When I picked this up, I was going to say, when we picked this, I went, I recognize that name, and then I did the old Wikipedia search, and I go, oh, she wrote a bunch of like Deep Space Nine novels. You've read yeah, something. That I read yeah, a couple of, yeah. yeah for she sure. also read the novelization for uh, Virus. Yes, she did. I, I noticed that, and I thought that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Future episode of Multimedia. No, probably not. Um, <laughs> anyway, so thank you for guys for joining us. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We, we would love ideas for episodes. Um, this is one where... I feel like having different voices provide their ideas for what we could cover uh, is very useful. You know, um, on our other show, Horror Movie Yearbook, we're pretty good at digging up horror movies if we, if even if we have a hard time on the spot. But um, this one, I think we could use some. Some I'd love to hear. So please email us multimediumpodcast at gmail You can find us on Twitter at multimediumpod, um, and we're on Facebook as well. So just get a hold of us some way. Give us some ideas. We'd love to hear. The basic idea, obviously, of the show is that we're going to be talking about uh, two, one single story in its, I guess, multiple versions um, through the uh, through adaptation. So, um, any ideas you have in terms of things that have been adapted from one medium to another, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we've got some fun ones, some that we're not even sure how we're going to tackle yet because they're kind of so oddball that it's like, how do you? How do we go about it? So it's going to be fun, though. We're, 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 we're excited, but we want to hear from you for sure. So please send us some feedback. We'd love to hear. Um, Tim, let's yep. talk Resident Evil for a second. Um, let's do it. So Resident Evil uh, the, uh, is, is a video game series. Uh, the first, first game in the series came out in 1996, released by Capcom, which is a Japanese video game company. Uh, Capcom is probably most well-known, besides Resident Evil, for Street Fighter. And Mega Man are probably the two big. That's what I associate other, with yeah. them. Yeah, Monster Hunter is now very big as well. There's a movie out currently, apparently, supposedly. Um, <laughs> it does. It seems to exist. They, they put together a trailer for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a thing. Um, the original game was released in 1996, as I said before, for the PlayStation system. That's right. The PlayStation 1, I guess we would call it now, uh, retroactively. Uh, it was also released on the PC and the Sega Saturn um, at the same time. So... Um, Originally, the game was actually, um, it began development as a remake of an NES game that Capcom had released called Sweet Home, which we've actually, if you want to hear more about Sweet Home, listen to our show, uh, Horror Movie Yearbook. We have an episode where we talk about Sweet Home, uh, which in itself is its own bizarre story of adapting things. Uh, we talk about the movie and the game Sweet Home. It's a very uh, cool movie. It's a cool movie. Yes. It's a really cool movie. I really, I still... I feel like I need to start the campaign to get like a, a proper HD version, like like restoration. Of I, that it doesn't movie. even have, it doesn't have a physical. There version is no physical release other than I think VHS. 
Okay. And I think it was only released in Japan. So Okay. Um but uh yeah, so the game was originally envisioned as a remake of Sweet Home uh from creator Shinji Mikami. Um the game itself went through various versions as as most games do. Things you don't hear about until after well after the fact. Uh it was envisioned as a first person shooter for a while. Um, it was envisioned as a co-op game for a little while with two players working together to solve puzzles and get through. Um, it was initially envisioned with ghosts being the, the villain or the enemy, much like Sweet Home. Um, but basically what happened was they decided based on both technical limitations and on just what worked or didn't work gameplay-wise to draw from a few different sources that Shinji Mikami felt would work together to create kind of a horrifying experience. So those are... Would, would be Sweet Home itself. Um, the basic idea of um, a small group of people uh, heading through the woods into a mysterious mansion and uncovering the horrors within the mansion, that's basically Sweet Home and Resident Evil. Very different from that point forward, but that's the basic idea. Um, the other uh, inspirations for the game would be Alone in the Dark, which was released on... The original game was released on PC in 1992. Um, that was primarily an inspiration in terms of gameplay, uh, kind of the tank controls, the inventory management, that kind of thing was borrowed from Alone in the Dark in a lot of ways. Um, have you played Alone in the Dark? The original, yes, I have played the original. Okay, yep, I really, I played. It was released on PlayStation later. I don't think it was the original. I want to say it was like Alone in the Dark two for PC that they released as Alone in the Dark. I don't know. I've played a handful of them. Uh, they're old, and I mean that in a way they're they're tough to play now. They are. Uh, even some of the older Resident Evils are tough to play now. So it's it's not uncommon for that to be. A thing. I think once we transition into 3D gaming, you feel the age of the games a lot more, both in graphics and gameplay, don't you think? Yeah. I, I can go back and play like a Super Nintendo game, and I, I, I understand that it's old, but it still feels f- playable and fresh to me because it's so simplistic. I think once you started getting into more complicated gameplay styles... It, well, that's kind of... Some of the early 3D games for me, if we're talking... like. I just played Super Mario 64 a little bit, and so that's kind of similar to me with Resident Evil. The as camera's well. tough. The camera is tough, and Resident that first Resident Evil is the same for me to where the camera will like it will like switch on you in an instant, and you'll be all of a sudden it'll be a top down view yeah. instead of like coming up from the ground. And so a lot of those when they're trying to figure out the 3D aspect of it, because I remember when like Mario 64 came out, it was like what? <laughs> yeah, some people were pissed about it. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, but even then, just see Mario in 3D because you yep. hadn't seen it then, and like I went back and played it because they just put out a collection of it, and I go, oh boy, this camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so yeah. that's the kind of thing to adjust to in a lot of these older games too. That early, those early 3D games. Yeah, it's finding their footing, I think. Yes. Yeah. So, um, no, so I've played some of them, and they're varying degrees of, of, of solid, I would say, the Alone in the Dark games. Um, you would think that Romero's movies were an inspiration, given the, the zombie being the primary enemy, but actually, it was Lucio Fulci's Zombie, or Zombie 2, um, from 1979 that, that Mikami quotes as being the inspiration. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, he did not I was quote, not aware. Yeah, he did not quote. And he actually says it's it's a negative inspiration because he doesn't think the zombies are terribly, you know, terrifying in those, so he wanted to make them even scarier. So he wanted to... Okay, so yeah. he saw it and went, I don't... He was not, I'm not impressed, but I think we can do it better. I can do this yeah. better. Okay. Um, and finally, The Shining was a huge inspiration. I think you can really see that in this first Resident Evil game, the mansion and the setting, and there's, there is a surrealist aspect to everything that's going on around you with the puzzles in the mansion and the... 
it, it there's a there's a Kubrick shining vibe about that design of that mansion in the original game. I think. Yeah, it's very much. I mean, very much kind of question your own sanity, yes. sanity when you enter that. And I didn't know that going in that that was an inspiration, but now with the particularly the mansion portions of the mm-hmm. game, that makes total sense. A lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I would say that the maybe not the the soundtrack for the remake of the original game, but the soundtrack of the original PlayStation game feels very Shining score to me. I mean, okay. it's it's in weird uh, blips and bloops a lot of the time, but it's but it feels very Shining to me, so I could see that in the score as well. Um, before we dig into the story of Resident Evil, I would like to hear kind of your first exposure to Resident Evil. I guess your first experience with Resident Evil. Uh, we've probably talked about this before when we've covered some of the other Resident Evil stuff we've done on Horror Movie Yearbook, but I guess I'm just curious to hear what your first, not even necessarily the first game, the first time you played the first game. I mean, I'd love to hear about that too. But I guess just the fir- your first um, exposure to the, the the world of Resident Evil as a whole. So I have become more of a like a late in life gamer. <laughs> like I play more games now that I'm older. Yeah, uh, I find them to be uh, very like therapeutic in a way. And now I I was hesitant towards them as I when I was younger. I just didn't play a lot when I was younger. Outside of I played a lot of sports games. Did you own any younger. systems when you were a kid? Yeah. Oh, I definitely did. Um, but a lot of it was were for sports games. Madden I was and I was big into Madden. I was big into the NHL games. Yeah. And but I always gravitated more to towards the Nintendo side of things. I liked more the I guess platformer. Your Mario's Mario. Well, Zelda's more. I guess Mega Man would yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. I I liked. I was a big Mario guy. I was a big Zelda guy. Well, and those which, are the two big. When you think of Nintendo, those are the two you think of first, right? Exactly. Yeah. So and then then as far as platformers goes, I was more of a Sonic guy as well. Oh yeah. I liked. I liked the. Idea. I just like kind of the trial and error aspect, particularly of Mario and Sonic, yeah. and I guess Zelda a lot of it too. So that's that's more of what I was drawn to is that style of gameplay, which isn't a particularly deep style of gameplay in a lot of ways. It's just, yeah, it's mostly just A B A B timing, um, and I don't mean to diminish it in any way. I think those are some of the best games ever made. But anyway. Um, as far as Resident Evil goes, though, my first exposure to it, I haven't played the game until like this past year, that first the, game. The first game. Yeah, and it was the remake version, which is available on Switch I played. Yeah, we should mention, uh, uh, I was going to mention this at the end, but but and I, I'll mention it again, but um, if you're looking to play the game we're talking about, um, it is the, the remake version of Resident Evil, which, if I'm being honest, is the better version. Um, technically, this book that we're going to be talking about isn't adapting that version. It's adapting the old 1996 PlayStation version, and there are some key differences. The basic plot does remain the same, though. Let's be honest; it it does. Yeah. Th- th- but um, if you're looking for the best version, it's the HD remaster of the remake. That's a lot of re. Um, and you can get it on basically any of the the current. Well, I guess last gen technically now because there's PlayStation 5. Right. And, but <laughs> you can get it on PS4 on the Marketplace. You can get it on Xbox. You can get it on Switch. So there's there's a plenty of places you can get it. Get it. And the Switch, honestly, the Switch is a really cool way to play it, especially you plug those headphones in and it, like you're sitting downstairs late at night. Kind it's of very, immersive. Yeah. It is very immersive in that way. My first exposure to the franchise, though, I remember it, it kind of vividly. Um, I was at a basketball camp in East Lansing. And it was a summer. It was summer of 1998. So we were a few months after Resident Evil 2 had come, just come out. So basically, we would go to camp, play basketball, and then we'd go back, and you would have free time. And our free times were listening to music, watching pro wrestling around the time, and 
a kid had Resident Evil with him, <laughs> and we would sit around and watch him play That's cool. Resident Evil 2, I should say. And so I remember there, and it was my first kind of exposure to it. I knew of it, but I was probably around 14 when that came out. So I was that's, still... That's got to be right. Yeah, because I was... Yeah. yeah, I was... God, how old was I? I was 10 when the first game came out. Right. So you would have been... Well, you would have been like 12. Oh, Resident Evil 2 was two years later. So yeah, yeah. 14 so exactly, I would have yeah. been 12 when yeah Resident Evil 1 came out. So I didn't have a ton of exposure. And I was more into the Sega... And I had a 64 around that time. And Resident Evil was not available on the Nintendo systems until GameCube, right? Uh, well, I guess it was correct. on NES. Oh, no, it wasn't. No, yeah. yeah Resident I'm, Evil was... F- the first Resident Evil game available on a Nintendo system would have been the GameCube. after. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it was... So I had Nintendo, and Nintendo was more geared towards a younger crowd than would play Resident Evil. So I didn't even have really any access to the games. I just knew them from um, advertisements and things like video game magazine, comic books, wizard magazine, stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> so EGM, that was yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I didn't have a ton of access to it. And then when the first movie came out, I remember there being kind of a um, a very negative reaction to it from a lot of people that were upset that it wasn't a more faithful adaptation of the game. So then I read a little bit more about what the game was about then. That was kind of my other than that. I'm just kind of curious about, well, well, then what's the... Yeah, because my only memories of the Resident Evil franchise were that summer, uh, that week in the summer in 1998 when I watched people play Resident Evil 2. And I went, well, this isn't that much different. <laughs> there are some similarities uh, to to the movie. So I was actually a big fan of the movie when I was younger because I didn't have that attach- attachment to the game. Yeah. I just right. thought the movie was cool and yep. I liked the part where the guy gets sliced into a million pieces. So like I just I just thought it was a fun fun movie and I, and I remember really like I was like a big Paul W.S. Anderson because he did Resident or he did Event Horizon mm-hmm. and I loved Event Horizon. And I liked the first Mortal Kombat. And Mortal Kombat. Like I remember thinking like oh this guy's cool mm-hmm. and that was around the time I was starting to get into reading about movies on the internet. Um, yeah. Because if I remember, a lot of the negative reaction came from uh, the Ain't It Cool News talkbacks. That sounds about right. <laughs> so so anyway, that was my experience until more recently when I have played through the first three and a half games right now, but mostly the remakes. I've right. been trying to play through four, but it it's a little bit tough, like you said, because of the controls. So my familiarity yeah. is mostly with those early games now and then the movie side of things because I've seen most all but one of the movies. And okay. So I'm not super familiar with it. I know you are. Yeah. Um. Yeah, my fr- yeah, yeah, sure. My first exposure to it, to Resident Evil was the first game. Um, a friend of mine... So I was already... I was like obsessed with... At this point in time, it was 10. I was obsessed with... Uh, and I mean really super into... Uh, Romero's movies like super duper into Romero's movies I don't think I had seen Day yet at this point but Night and Dawn I was like obsessed with I already opened my copy of Dawn on Christmas morning you know I've told that story before on uh, on other shows but I, I I got a copy of Dawn of the Dead on Christmas and I was like blown away like that changed my my life um, which sounds silly but it's true um, and so I was in I was into zombie stuff and I went over to a friend's house, very close friend of mine in elementary school, and he had a copy of it. I don't remember if he had bought it or he was renting it or something, and we were playing it. He, they were too scared to play it. I remember a couple of them were too scared to play it. I was like, I'll try it. And then like, I got, I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. Like, I'm playing a Romero movie. In my head, that was what it was. And I remember getting to the hallway where the dogs come through the window, 
and then breaking through, I turned it off and I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't play it again until I got my own copy when I got brave enough, or maybe I told my dad about it and he he bought, got me a copy for a birthday or something of Resident Evil Director's Cut, which was the same game with some extra stuff thrown in, um, including a demo for Resident Evil 2 because that was on the way. So my first copy I ever owned was Director's Cut. And uh, I I had not, but I, I never, I did not finish Resident Evil 1 until years after that. I was too scared. I'd play it for like 20 minutes, half hour at a time, and then I'd have to stop. And then I'd play it for another 20, like I'd turn... And then eventually I'd forget where I was and I'd just give up and start over from the, you know. So, so I think I only played the first like two hours of the game um, for years. I wound up finishing RE2, which is which the original is arguably, is certainly less scary than the original Resident Evil 1. The remake of Resident Evil 2 is terrifying. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's my first, and then I became a fan. You know, I, I, I saw the movie and actually liked the first movie. Um watched all the movies and played all the games. I think I've beat all the main games in the series and stuff. So I'm a, I'm a fan. Yeah, what you would call a fan of Resident Evil. Um, and, uh, yeah. I, I read, uh, I actually, I read Umbrella Conspiracy back then. I The same friend, funny enough, the same friend who I first played Resident Evil at his house on his PlayStation, uh, he borrowed my copy of Umbrella Conspiracy and I never got it back. So this is, this copy up here is my second copy. Um, he might still have my original copy. I don't know. <laughs> oh, one more thing. I just wanted to, uh, I did it. This is a terrible joke I made at the time. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to repeat it here because I've never repeated it anywhere. I, Masterpiece Make Em Say Uh was a big song in 1998 when this came out. And I said I was doing a, a sing-along of it, but I replaced the uh with an impression of the zombies from the game. And it made everybody laugh in the room that was playing. Oh, and yeah. And I was so happy. <laughs> Make them say, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was a very, it, was a very, it was a very proud moment for That's me. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. I remember there was one of those joke articles in one of the mag- the video game magazines at the time and this is the time when video game magazines were like the shit like yeah. you had EGM and Game Informer and all this stuff I remember one of the it was what was it it was called President Evil Four Gore Years it was like like a new Resident <laughs> Evil game that they were like it was like a parody or something yeah. I thought that was really Four Gore Years because I think it was when Gore was running uh, that's really President good. Evil Four that Gore Years that is a years. really yeah. good pun <laughs> yeah. that's kind of fun anyway enough of that um, let's talk about the story of Resident Evil a little bit so the basic and, and the the basic idea of the story runs through the original game, the Umbrella Conspiracy novel, and the remake of the game. It is about uh, a series of murders of mysterious murders and cannibalistic murders, so even grislier than your average run of the mill murder, I suppose, uh, taking place in the outskirts of a midwestern city called Raccoon City. Um, and people are going missing. Hikers are disappearing. Uh, like I said, they're they're, they're partially eaten there's a lot of uh, fear in the city about what's going on there's a lot of concern about when is this going to get solved and uh, raccoon city has a special uh swat-esque unit called stars which stands for special tactics and rescue squadron or uh, or squad um group of kind of highly trained uh soldiers that are adept at different you know, you got you got your medic and your vehicle guy and your biochemist guy, which is makes a lot of sense as you get into the plot of the game, I guess. But at first, you're like, why that guy? Um, you know, you've got they're soldiers and they're they're kind of a SWAT team, and they are sent into the Arclay Forest to investigate these murders. Um, and the first team sent in is called the Bravo Team. Their their helicopter is is uh, a mysterious malfunction and they lose contact with Bravo Team. And then Alpha Team's flown in, and that's the where the story of the game and uh, 
the game picks up with you playing as one of the members of Alpha Team. Uh, you can you get to pick, which is kind of unique, I think. And even even when Resident Evil, the original, had come out, that was kind of unique that you were able to play. Yeah, the, the stories were similar, but they were different enough. I mean, it was, you know, Chris would interact with different characters than Jill and, and vice versa. So you could play the game twice and have a unique experience either time. Plus there were multiple endings, which added to the, the replay factor. But you play as one of the two uh, the two leads from the Stars Alpha team as you investigate uh, the goings-on in the forest, the, the series of grisly murders, what happened to your fellow, uh, your Bravo team compatriots, uh, and uh, what is the Umbrella Conspiracy. So basic plot of the game and the and the and the book so yeah. um yeah i kind of want to go through some characters i think that's that, that's that's my favorite way to go through some of these is to kind of dig through the characters themselves and we'll kind of cover some of the plot beats uh through their eyes and we're going to compare a little bit game to book right yes because we should it, yeah we should mention yeah sure. this is we're ta- yeah we're talking about that adaptation it's a pretty straightforward adaptation yes this novelization the umbrella conspiracy it's the first in the series of, of novels yes. of novels of resident evil and it's a yeah it's a pretty straightforward um adaptation of what that plot you just talked about and we should mention how strange it is i think that so it's not that uh novels based on video games aren't heard of i think what's strange about this one what's interesting and unique about this one is that it's an adaptation of a game it's not uh most video game books tend to be expanded universe stuff uh maybe about uh characters that have minor roles in the games that they expand upon in a book or even just different adventures that lots of Halo books are out. There's a lot of Halo books out there. A lot of Gears of War novelization or books, I've, from what I recall. Um, but they usually are side stories, um, tangentially related to the main entries in the video game series. It's rare to see somebody trying to straight up adapt a game um, like this. And this book comes at a very interesting time, I think, both in games and in. <laughs> Uh, adaptate novelizations because you're right there aren't a ton of them and this is one of the earlier novelizations like straight adaptations of a game i think they did you know, they did a halo one right yeah i believe there was a halo novelization yeah. of I, I guess i don't have a i don't have a firm grasp on which ones they were i do know this is probably early but this is also around the time video games are still kind of early they're getting more mature but they're this is early in that maturation of the storytelling of uh, yeah. when it comes to storytelling in video games. This is when things started to feel more like interactive movies. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think by when we're recording now, which is 2021 is um, video games have gotten to a point. You follow the course of like say movies and a lot of those early movies are train pulling into a station yeah. or a trip to the moon. It's just like basic, basic stuff. And it's kind of similar to a lot of those early video games. Like Pong is just, going back it's and forth. two white lines smacking a two white, white square around. And then you watch, yeah, you watch the evolution of it and then it's Mario and Mario's a platformer yeah. and he's just kind of jumping up He's a up character. He might yeah. not have a ton of characterization but he's a character. There's a very basic story but in, you covered you covered the plot to this. The plot to this isn't necessarily deep but no. there it does have a plot and you do get to uncover certain aspects of it. And this was 1996 now so we're 20-30 years after right. um, a lot of those early games and you do get to uncover stuff as you go, but part of the fun is still it's still that video game. It's the exploration. Yes. And it's it's that feeling of being in this creepy mansion, and it's that feeling of, oh, what's this door unlock? And then you go there, and it's got a big giant snake. Well, and that's one of, so that's what I love about that first, uh, the early Resident Evil games, and the first game in particular, is that there's this excitement you get 
And it's not unique to this series. I mean, I, I would say it goes as far back, certainly, as for me, as like the Zelda series, where you find a key for something that you've been trying to unlock the whole game, and you're like, oh my god, I can finally go through the door. And you get excited when you find it because it opens up new avenues for you to explore. Um, and, and you got to backtrack and go back to the hallways. You you know, it's it's fun. It's there's that exploit exploration and uh, expanding of the universe kind of before your eyes is is really exciting as you're playing. You don't know what monsters you're going to see. You don't know what fi- I, the files are. Something in the game that I I really enjoy. Uh, you get a lot of your backstory on uh, the goings on of the mansion through notes and stuff that you pick up from people that have left them behind. So that kind of stuff is always exciting because you don't know what you're going to find in each room or what kind of new things you're going to uncover. And I I dig that. It's great. Um, I do have a quote. That's I was trying to find a quote from the author. I found an interview with from S.D. Perry. Okay, S.D. Yep. Perry talking about the process because they just kind of contacted her, um, the <laughs> the makers of Resident Evil. And they said, "Make this. Like, can you write a book about yeah. this?" And they gave her no- nothing. Like, they didn't give her like any sort of Bible or. <laughs> but she said, "This is directly from her." But video game books weren't really a thing. I didn't have a game guide or a Bible, only the game to work from. So I played and played and took pages of notes trying to capture the feel of each room, documenting each event and interaction. Every time I wasn't sure about a detail, I played again, finally videotaping the screen so I could fast forward to what I needed. My first run through of the game took me about 20 hours. By the time I'd finished the book, I could get through it in less than two hours. Not impressive by gamer standards, but I was mostly a casual player. So that's kind of, I wanted to just, that's the process she had to go through. Nowadays, the makers of these games, what I would assume, if they were going to make a novelization of Resident Evil 8, I would assume Capcom or whoever would send the person writing it the entire Bible or... Yeah, I mean, I would character breakdowns. Character breakdowns. Yeah. Or they would have so much more stuff to go on. They just said, hey, can you can you play this and then uh, write a book about it? <laughs> well, what's amazing about that too is actually uh, George Romero was tapped at one point to write a script for this first game uh, that he was going to direct was the plan. And he had a similar experience where he just had his assistant play the game and record it, and then he would watch the VHS playbacks of his assistant playing through the game. So he would he wrote the script based around that that playthrough. <laughs> it's kind of amazing, isn't <laughs> it? It is amazing, yeah. <laughs> but I guess what are you going to do? I mean, if you don't have the material, then this is what you have to do. So it, it makes a lot of sense. It's just bizarre it, by today's standards, by today, I yeah. think. Like, write a book about our... <laughs> Okay. So I think this book is an excellent uh, example of being early in the process of both of those things. Yeah. And both video games, the maturation of video game storytelling, and just a novelization of a video game. Yeah. So it's kind of cool in that way. It's pretty neat. Um, let's talk, so let's talk about our characters. Let's start with, with, with Jill Valentine, one of our two, I guess you'd call them the two leads of, of Resident Evil. Um, I think this is going to be a sentiment that you and I both echo probably ad nauseum as we go through these characters, which actually will probably make this section a little quicker than normal. Um, but the majority of the changes, and they're not even changes, but the majority of the difference between the characters in the book and the game are quite simply, specifically with these two leads, just you get backstory on them. Um, in the game, you get plenty of backstory on the Umbrella Corporation, who is, of course, this insidious company that's creating all this havoc in this lab in the woods. Um, you get plenty of back information on them through these files you find. You even get a lot of backstory on uh, some of like the, the characters you never meet, like the researchers of the Umbrella Corporation and stuff. What you don't really ever get is backstory or motivations beyond being the good guys, the members of the SWAT team, on Chris or Jill. You really don't get any sort of idea of who they are um 
I'd go as far as to say they're a little wooden. You know, they're they're kind of just the heroes. They're, there's nothing terribly interesting about them. They're cool. I mean, they look cool. You know, I like Jill and Chris. I think as the games go on and become a little bit more uh, mature, a little bit more in terms of their storytelling and the, the, what they're trying to do with them, you get to learn more about those characters. Certainly, uh, most recently that the Resident Evil Three remake, I Jill feels like a like a yeah. living, breathing character. Maybe for the first time in the series to be honest with you so it's just but that's just the evolution of i think storytelling um in video games but in this we do get some background on them in the, in the book we get some background on them uh, we start our story shortly before where the game starts off the game starts off where you're basically landing the helicopter and running through the woods and you start in the front hall of the mansion not knowing what the hell is going on you just know that there's something monster dogs in the woods the book sets us up basically the morning before that, where we get to see Jill in her or in her house or apartment prepping for the day's work. We get to see a little bit of the team together interacting, uh, Chris's relationships with some of the other guys on the team. We get a little bit of the inner, you know, uh, inner monologue of Jill and her upbringing, and a little bit of Chris's. Uh, so it, it, and none of it contradicts anything you see from them in the game it's backstory that you could easily you can when you go back and play the game after reading the book you're like yeah that could be the same character like there's no there's nothing that makes it contradict uh maybe with wesker that's where we're gonna so we'll get there we'll get there oh you were talking specifically of jill and chris Chris. okay yeah yeah, you're right yes there's uh but wesker well yeah wesker is probably the most changed in the book um but uh Let's talk about Jill first. I, cool. I I really really like the backstory of Jill in this book. I think it's very. I think it. Her upbringing with her dad having been, uh, kind of a hotshot thief. Dick Valentine. Dick Valentine. Yes. Yeah, and him having kind of taught her the ropes, and that I love that that becomes part of the whole master of unlocking thing from the game. Like take this lockpick. You know? So yeah, Jill's yeah Jill's skill is yeah she can unlock things in the game. You start with a lockpick, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's well, kind of yeah. Jill's kind of easy mode in the game. In some ways, yes, yes. for sure. So you start with a lockpick. Her character is Barry. She's with Barry, right? Barry runs. She's paired up with Barry Burton. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, she has more inventory slots, so she's kind of the easy mode. Yeah. The only thing ways. that she, the only drawback she has in the games is she can take less hits than Chris. That's right. the only drawback. The rest of it, she's definitely the easier character. She's the easier character to finish the game with. Right. For sure. So yeah, like you mentioned, sorry, in the book she is she is daughter of the professional thief Dick Valentine. Yes. And that's why she knows how to pick locks. Which is fun. I yeah. like this because it's, you know, this is backstory that, that uh, as far as I'm understanding, Perry invented. This is not something that was handed to her in any way, shape, it, or form. No, it wasn't. Um, and so I love this because I think that you could have easily started this book just in the the mansion like the game and just made the character just spew out the dialogue from the game and have it be done and over with and cash in real quick. But I love that she puts the extra effort in and goes, okay, so Jill knows how to pick locks. Why? I like that. I think it's fun, you know? Because you don't really, I, or at least I don't, I get caught up in the actual mechanics of the game and the learning and the, the rules as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. of the characters. That, that's the kind of the weird thing about playing a game and reading a book. The difference is, is I'm more interested in what I can do rather than why I can do it. Yes. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's kind of the fun of yeah, You never question book. in the game, right? Right. I'm just like, oh, she's got a lockpick. This will help me out. She's good at that. Picking locks. <laughs> she knows how to do that. Cool. She's right. a special forces person. She can, yeah. Yeah, no, so... um. I dig all the Dick Valentine stuff. I think it's really cool. And I think um, I also, I really, really like, because I think it's important. I think one thing you don't get in the games, obviously, is a 
beyond a sense of duty and obviously that being their jobs as police officers, you don't get a, there's no personal stakes in what's happening with the umbrella, uh, mansion, uh, for them, for either Chris or Jill and the book, you get personal stakes for both. And with Jill, it's about, um, a couple of young girls that she met and kind of befriended when she moved to Raccoon City and took up the stars officer job. And it's a couple of kids and the girls were murdered and killed by whatever is in the woods that's killing people. Um, and so that adds this level of personal stakes for Jill and a reason for her to keep kind of pushing forward and, uh, fight through all the craziness that's going on in the mansion and not give in and give up. Um, there's that extra layer of her having formed a connection when she's not terribly good at connecting with people. It seems like her having formed a connection with these kids and then having it kind of ripped away from her. So I like all that too. I think that all works. And she's a conflicted character, which is nice because she is kind of wondering, I, I, I like the Jill stuff in this book. Yeah, me yeah, too. Um, it's it's probably it's probably some of the start. That first chapter you talked about, the first couple chapters, like pre mansion, is probably my favorite stuff. It's in, really good. It's my yeah. favorite stuff in this book, and it's um, but she's also conflicted too because she's wondering if this is the right path for her because yeah. of her past and because of her dad, who he was, and how he got arrested. And she, his arrest kind of prompted her into going into the career path. She was almost she forced did. into it yeah. in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, I think the Jill the Jill stuff, particularly early on, is the, uh, that's my favorite stuff in the book. It, it adds a layer to her character. And so, this is more, this is, I a lot of this, this is kind of a teen book. Yeah. Written for teens, so sure. it is it is a little bit straightforward in that route, but I do like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Chris, uh, Chris is so. Chris is similar to Jill in the fact that he, you do get a little bit more of his backstory. His is a little bit more. Jill's kind of one of the newcomers to the team in a lot of ways. Um, Chris is a little bit more outgoing. He's been around a little bit longer. He has a personal uh, history with Barry. They served together in, I believe, the Air Force. Um, he's also good friends with uh, Forrest Speyer from Bravo Team. Um, so he has a little bit more. You get to meet some of the other uh, team members through Chris's eyes more so than Jill's. Um, what they add to Chris, what, what, what Perry adds to Chris, I think in the beginning of this is a sense of not paranoia, but Chris is a bit of a conspiracy theorist here. Chris, and he, and he has good reason to be, um, his friend who worked for the Umbrella Corporation basically called Chris late at night, panicking and wanting to meet up with him because he had things he had to tell him and then disappeared, uh, presumably being killed. His friend's name is Billy Rabbitson. Uh, we'll talk about Billy shortly. Um, but, uh, this is kind of Chris's personal stake in this is a, Chris is a goody two shoes and he kind of is in the games too. And that's what he, he's, he's like, he, you know, he's like the, I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way. He's like the Captain America of Resident Evil. Like he's the, he's always the good guy. Captain he's, America with a little bit of a uh, Fox Mulder thrown in. Little, yeah. <laughs> yeah yes, he, I love that. The truth yes. is out there. Yeah. Yes. He's a little bit like that. And, uh, and so Chris isn't. You get a little bit more of that from the game version of Chris, I think, than you do the st- the backstory here from Jill, but it still does expand on Chris and kind of add other layers to him and-, and gives him, like I said, a personal stake. Finding out what happened to his friend Billy is really important to him in this book. Like what, you know, he knows more- there's more going on than meets the eye, and if anything, he's opening other people's eyes to that a little bit, the possibility of that a little bit. Um, but that also makes him a thorn in Wesker's side, particularly. Because he's the one who's ranting and raving, and Wesker's, you know, we'll get into Wesker, but Wesker's like, shut the fuck up, Chris. You know? <laughs> um, and you don't want to be a Thorn and President Wesker. Side. You do not. <laughs> no. you, indeed, you do not. So, uh, any thoughts on the Chris stuff? I mean, I. I, uh, I so the Chris, uh, Chris in the game, I'm not 
familiar with that much. Like I guess I just kind of I kind of played through a little bit with him. I'm not a particularly good gamer, so a couple hours for me got me to like a little bit further in the mansion. <laughs> but yeah, so I mostly am familiar with Jill's side of things. Um, I know Rebecca is his in his the game, kind of partner character, his partner yep. kind of in the game. So it's kind of a different story in a lot of ways. As far as in the book, yeah, you kind of cover it. He's still kind of. He's very headstrong as well in the book, and he's still kind of yeah. He's he's looking for the source of what's going. He's trying to find the answers here. I am more interested in the Jill side of things. If to be honest, and there's a lot of jumping back and forth in this book between the two, and I kind of was a little bit more. I think Jill in the book is. I don't know initially know if either one is particularly deep. But I think Jill is the deeper character to me, sure, or or maybe the more interesting. Sure, for I would me. agree. I would yeah. agree. Yeah, so. And Jill is kind of the one I associate in my head with Resident Evil because she was kind of the poster when I yeah. first saw it. So the blue beret and everything. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's round out talking about the Alpha team, which is of course the team that we mostly follow throughout the course of the game and the book. Uh, let's talk about Wesker, Albert Wesker, yeah, uh, so captain is- of Bravo of the of the Stars team, uh, the leader of Stars. Um, in the game, we discover. I mean, let's be honest. You look at that guy, and you know he's shady right out of the gate. He wears sunglasses at night. He wears sunglasses all over the place. All you know, over the place. Kind of, he maybe has a condition, you think. Perhaps. But, but, but mostly, he doesn't seem like the he, type. On the up and up. No. no. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> the fact that they're surprised by it is very funny. Um, but anyway, um, you learn kind of late stage in the game through those aforementioned files that Wesker is, in fact, working for the Umbrella Corporation. In the game, it is a little different, though. They discover that in the, in the you discovered as a reader in the book much earlier. Uh, there's some Wesker POV chapters that we'll talk about that are particularly fun. Um, but Wesker's the difference, the big difference in terms of what Wesker's trying to accomplish between the game and the book here is in the in the in the game, uh, Wesker is it, yes, he is a, a an umbrella researcher and employee, but what he's actually trying to do is steal Umbrella's data. And sell it to another company. Right. So he's like a triple agent in a lot of ways in, in the game. Um, he's, he's a slime ball with an extra layer of slime on top of the initial. In the book, it's a lot more simplified. Um, it's more, he's just trying to erase as much of the, get rid of the evidence to help Umbrella out. I can see why she simplified it probably for the book. I mean, it just makes it easier when he's, when you're not adding another wrinkle maybe in Wesker's uh, scheming, um, but he's kind of he's kind of conf- there are times when he's kind of conflicted in the book, right? A little bit, yeah. So he's Wesker's different in the book. Wesker's probably the character that's changed the most, right? And because there's no there's no real conflict for him in the game. He's going to do what he's going yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in the book, he grows. Doesn't aren't there? Isn't there stuff in the book, or am I misremembering? Where he grows like attached to, or he has like fond memories of the fellow characters, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's it does seem like he's got there. He's a little so it's weird because the book book Wesker is sleazy sleazy yeah. sleazy 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 like there's a whole POV bit where he talks about like he sees a zombie female zombie in the mansion and he gets excited to kill it because it's a woman that turned him down on a date <laughs> like that's sleazy um, 
and he makes weird comments about like not looking so beautiful anymore, are you, or something like just, that. Just so you know who he is in the book, uh, yeah. here's an example. Oh, here we go. Wesker presented himself as an independent thinker, a man who didn't play politics. So, to, like, Wester, Wesker is the guy, like, you just want to shut up at yes. times, because he will, he's the type of guy, Wesker's the type of guy that will make sure to tell you he's an independent thinker. <laughs> and not a man of politics. Yes. Yeah. Every yeah. time, that's how he starts his conversations. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, and I think one thing that's hard, too, from, as a fan of the series as a whole, it's tough to separate this initial characterization of Wesker from the first game first in this in this book from like what he would become later in the series because in the series of games he becomes like this big bad kind of world threatening supervillain basically uh literally I mean he's he's got like superpowers so this Wesker is kind of just a just a jerk yeah. just a nasty double agent just trying to make a buck you know and, what I mean and in um the author's defense, S.C. Perry's defense, too, like we mentioned at the outset here, she was not given much to work no. with in part. And I don't even know what, yeah, you're right. They haven't really delved into Wesker's backstory at this point at all in nope. the games. I think she was writing this around the time. I think this came out in 98 as well, right? This came out the same year as the second game. As the second game. So, so she was writing this as that game was coming out, too. Right. There's not a lot. She's kind of got to make it up as she goes, and well, she can only go off of playing the game. And Capcom didn't even know they were going to bring Wesker back at this point. Let's just be honest. Yeah. So her kind of killing Wesker pretty decisively in the book, is it te- is it go against what became the canon of the games? Yeah. But she didn't know. And actually, what's interesting is... Wesker meets his fate. There's depending on how you play the game and who you play the game with, Wesker's fate can be different. Um, in the original PlayStation game, um, he gets skewered by the tyrant, kind of in the canon version of events, I guess, if you want to go with that. Yeah. But there is a version in the game where he's actually the one who um, activates the self-destruct sequence for the lab, and you can find his body in the boiler room where all those chimeras, uh, you know, the creatures that can swing from the yeah. like vents and stuff. You can find his body all beaten up, which is what happens in this. So it, she was probably it was probably just the ending she happened to get when she was playing the game and went, okay, well that's the ending of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a good chance she didn't even know there were multiple endings to the game. Who knows? Uh, it sounds like they didn't help her out very much. So, <laughs> but um, it's funny because on one hand, I I don't love the characterization of Wesker in this book because of the Wesker we get later on. It doesn't vibe with the character I now know to be Wesker. But on the other hand that character didn't exist at this point in right. time. So I think Wesker's fun in the book. I think he's sleazy. I th- I like, once again, that he's just got more characterization than he does in the game. It's another example of just a character that gets expanded upon a bit. And the stuff where he's blackmailing Barry later in the book is a ton of... Wesker's sweet. <laughs> yeah, he's a real scumbag. <laughs> that's a, but that's the kind of thing. Wesker's like weirdly inconsistent in this book for me. Like, Well, yeah, because on one hand, he's like super cool and collected. Yeah. And then on other, other times, he's like reveling and twisting his mustache because he has some internal chapters as well some internal monologue chapters that aren't real consistent for me but when he starts going into blackmail sleazeball mode then I'm then I'm on board poor sweet Barry's little girls will have to ha 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 that's the Wesker I know that's President Wesker he's fun Uh, let's talk about Barry Uh, Barry is another character we get some point of view stuff from in this book um Barry's kind of the big teddy bear of the group he's the one that's always looking out for everybody else are you a big Barry Burton fan I thought I recall you Barry Burton fan okay love Barry man yeah Barry's great um and I actually I think Barry's pretty well written in this book too I think that um I think you get more character from Barry in the game than you do with like a Chris and a Jill in the game you get a little bit more of his his inner 
turmoil because of what Wesker's doing to his family and stuff. But um, but you uh, it once again it gets expanded upon, and you learn a little bit more about his not only his history and his love for his family, which hopefully he loves his family, right? But his love for his fellow stars members and his feeling like he needs to protect them and his real feelings of like complete and utter brokenness and guilt over even having to do anything that would put them in harm's way. Um, I love Barry. I think Barry's great. I think he's like the classic uncle character. Like he's just out there to help, help us pass. You know, he's always a little a helping hand, even for Wesker, I guess. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, there's not there's not a ton to add. Most of the Barry stuff I there Barry has some backstory in the book, but most of the Barry stuff I find myself as jo- enjoying is the back and forth between he and Wesker. Yeah, the, the towards, cat and mouse. Yeah, yeah. The, towards the end. So it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Um, our final member of uh, well, I we should mention R.I.P. to dearly departed Joseph Frost, the one member of Alpha Team other than Wesker that doesn't make it out. I don't know if you remember Joseph. Joseph is the guy who gets eaten by dogs basically as soon as they land. As soon as they land. He's like the jokester in the book, which I love that they had some more. So you you feel worse when he dies in the book because you don't know a thing about him in the game. You're like, oh, that sucks. But like in the book, at least you get to know him a little bit beforehand. And he seems like he's kind of like the prankster jokester, right? Class clown. Him and Barry kind of goof around together. And he's needed for some levity. They should, they could have used him. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) I would have been cool with him keeping her, her keeping him around a little bit longer. Um, But, and then we've got Brad Vickers, the, the, the helicopter pilot. Brad is my, he's my, he's my go-to. He's He's my spirit animal. He's my spirit animal. Because what's his name gets killed. Brad says, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those are zombie dogs. Bye. Brad, Brad is the guy that comes back in the game too right and gives you the yeah he just goes here's a rocket launcher (laughs) brad is my favorite character he's my favorite resident yeah he shows up and saves you at the end and everybody kind of forgets that he's the one that fucked you over in the first because how long do you think the game lasts in terms of hours i know time probably works differently i mean i would so i i think the sun's just coming up as you fight tyrant i would say it's they're they're in that mansion for probably five or six hours so brad gets out of there he takes a helicopter out of there at the he beginning. flies around circles. flies around maybe he lands it at a bar feels, gets a couple gets beers a takes a takes a quick nap and goes fuck i gotta get back. he sleeps on it i hope they're still alive <laughs> he's like i better go back there and then he gets back there he doesn't really want to help he just tosses a rocket launcher <laughs> yes. yeah uh, yeah i'm not landing until you kill that thing yeah <laughs> i love brad uh yeah brad is brad is a chicken shit i mean you know is he in any of the other games yeah Okay. Yeah, Brad. Well, Brad is in the remake of RE3. Oh, you're right. Okay, Briefly, I remember him now. But he's in it. And actually, I really like him in that game, if I'm being honest. His bit in that game is actually really good. What's he doing? Uh, he he um, helps Jill, uh, and he gets bit, if you remember right. And he's holding the door closed, and he's like, just go. And she's like, no, you know, I'm not going to leave you. And he goes, he goes, you know... Let me, ma- you know, basically, like, let me have this moment I fucked up before. Like, so there is a redemption. I like that. Arc for he never Brad. gets that in the in the old games. He, right. he just kind of gets killed horribly. Um, but <laughs> I like that these new games they are able to flush him out a little bit. Yeah, Brad is Brad. I mean, Brad doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, we'll talk about Trent very shortly here, who's a book only character. Um, Trent and Brad have an interaction towards the end that's kind of funny. Um, Bravo team. There's we, not a ton. Can we talk to- about Rebecca? Yeah, yeah, so she is a member of Bravo Team. Oh, she is a member yeah, of Bravo Team. Let's talk okay. about her first. Um, she's the only surviving You're member right. of Bravo Team, um, which is the first team that's sent into uh, the woods to investigate. They're the ones that chop, their chopper goes down. Um, Rebecca is young. She's like fresh out of high school, or I guess she's kind of a genius. Um, she's like, I think she's out of college, but she's only like 18 or 19 in the book. And um, 
she's kind of a super medical genius basically and she's enlisted for that reason um she's brand new to the team she barely knows anybody at this point uh, i don't think she's even met some of them so like chris i don't think she even knows i think she's early in her first year on the team is what it says yeah Yeah, pretty early on um and she and in the game she's much better in this book than in the game i'm if i'm just being honest rebecca comes off as she does stuff in the game that's useful towards the end, especially. It's not that she doesn't do any anything useful, but she doesn't seem ever seem realistic. Like I have a that's it's anytime you have a child genius basically character in something, I've got to suspend my disbelief to a certain extent. I'm not saying they don't exist; they do. But I always kind of laugh when there's like an 18 year old super soldier in like these these video games and stuff. I'm like, it doesn't even this kid doesn't know anything. Why right. would you? Yeah, but but. Rebecca in the book, I think they do a good job of painting her as resourceful enough to have to be. I I can see how she'd be recruited, and I can see how she'd survive. She seems like she's resourceful enough. She's not written as overly strong for her age. Um, she's still scared shitless. She's to, but she's also like, she's a good person. And she's like she like wants to prove herself. Um, and she's resourceful, and I like that. So yeah, the thing with Rebecca in the book is so she has there are a few <laughs> yeah so she is. She doesn't. She's a little bit insecure about her youth. Yeah, and, which she would be. I mean, yeah, and how Chris looks at her, and we get um, like an internal monologue about uh, from Rebecca's point of view about how she doesn't want to be thought of like that. She doesn't want to be treated like a child. Yeah. The issue is we get like like fifteen of these. <laughs> like, right. like she. It's true. I like a lot of that stuff, but it does become a little bit. Well, it becomes the defining part of her character instead of yes, yeah. and also you don't really get. Like Chris doesn't really do that in the book. He doesn't. There's one moment I think where he goes like, "Man, maybe I shouldn't have talked to her like that." Right. Where he almost kind of checks himself, like, "Eh, right." You know, <laughs> she is a soldier, you know. So I like I like that from Chris because right. it's him kind of it's it, that's that's a good character moment. That's too. a good character moment, and it's a rare character moment I think in a lot of ways. I think that we get a character moment like that because we have a female author here, and and he's she's able to kind of. Add yeah, that little, and little wrinkle a, to, yeah. I actually like, yeah, I think she does add, add that. And I, I you, you can tell she kind of, I think she feels, you, I think she feels like she latches on a little bit. And it might be just me kind of projecting, but it, it feels like she latches on a little bit to Jill, Jill and Rebecca as characters yeah. in that way. And I think it's cool. Yeah. But I also, I also think it does, with Rebecca, it does get a little bit repetitive. Sure. Like uh, the uh, whole, I don't want to be treated like a child thing. Yeah. I think it happens like, quite a few times in the book. It's a little bit more than it needs to be. <laughs> I would yes. agree. Um, it's not a terribly long book, but they do spend a lot of time with Rebecca wondering if she's, if anybody's taking her seriously. So I get that. Um, I like the character. I do like the character. I do um, yeah. And she does, she feels real to me, at least. Um, as real as a character that's 18 and on the super special SWAT force, you know, can feel. Um, and in the game, Rebecca just feels a little bit, especially the original, the remake, she's a little bit more maybe, um, active in the original. She's just kind of obnoxious. If I'm being honest. Yeah. She feels like an 18 year old kid who just got stuck in the mansion. So you are like, shut up. Yeah. Please stop. And maybe she, maybe Steve Perry played that game and was like, I want to, I need to redeem this. I probably, yeah, probably. Um, let's talk about the rest of Bravo team real briefly. Not a lot of them do much, uh, especially in the book. Um, once again, that well, I should say they do get a little bit. They get character beats very early on before they head to the mansion. You at least get a tiny glimmer through either Jill and Chris's thoughts or through their interactions in the early chapters 
um, about who they were, like we said with, with Joseph, right? In the game, he gets killed by dogs. We know he's a member of the team. We know they're probably sad that he's dead because he's a member of the team. But Joseph never gets mentioned again, like in the game. Uh, by the time credits roll, you don't remember that that even happened, I don't think. <laughs> um, and in the book, you get a little bit more with him. And you do with the rest of them, too. You get a little bit about uh, Forrest, who is uh, famously the character, uh, the Bravo character who in the uh, remake of the game, turns into a zombie and attacks you. He's killed by crows, pecked to death by crows, and comes back. Um, him and Chris are buddies. Uh, he's got an Alabama twang. That's something you learn about him in the... And he seems like he's like he's like the go-getter. Like, I just want to go, go go save the world. You know, like, he's very like... <laughs> uh, that's not an Alabama twang, but you know what I mean. He just... he's He seems like a young, like a very youthful, like, fun-loving. Like, he just likes his job. He likes to fight bad guys. You know? Yeah. So, you get a little bit of that. Enrico, you don't learn a ton about. Uh, he's the yeah. t- he's kind of he seems like a no nonsense type guy. He is buddies with Barry, which is something that I think adds a little bit to his eventual demise. Of course, Wesker shoots and kills him. Say so Wesker kills Enrico, right? In both the game and the book, um, because Enrico's probably found out the most about the truth behind the Umbrella conspiracy. And in the, in the book, I like that they add the wrinkle of. Uh, a, you're getting more about Barry and Wesker's uh, interactions, like you said before. You're getting more of Barry's guilt through his inner monologue. And B, Enrico dying means more to Barry uh, because he talks about how uh, their families are friends, like the wives are friends, and they get together for like family dinners and the kids play with each other and stuff. So like, Enrico's more than a coworker. Like They're clearly friends outside of work. So him getting killed and Barry being, in a lot of ways a part of that or a complicit in that in some ways uh, makes it hit harder than it certainly does in the game where you're just like, oh shit, somebody shot him. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> um, uh, who else do we have on Bravo Team? Uh, Richard Aiken. Now this is an interesting character. Uh, Richard is a character... Well, let's talk about Richard. In in the original game, you bump into Richard and he's been bit by a giant venomous snake. Yawn is the name of the snake in the game. And uh, terrifying, yeah, is terrifying. Yes, you're not a fan. I know not that. A fan of Jan. And you find him with uh, Rebecca, who is trying to uh, treat his wounds, and you're you're tasked with going and getting an antidote to save Richard. And you have a timed it's 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 a hidden timer in the game where you have to go find the antidote and bring it back to Richard to give it to him in time. Okay. The funny part about the original game is like it doesn't matter if you get it to him in time or not. He just dies anyway. <laughs> so it's like pointless. <laughs> In the remake of the game, they added a little bit to it because they probably said, like, why do we even make that an option? In the remake of the game, if you get to Richard in time uh, with the antidote, he actually comes back later in the game and helps you out. Uh, He still gets killed, but he has a little bit more to do. Um, In this book, she really simplifies it and just she shows up and Richard is dead. Uh, He's a corpse. So I can see why she did that based on the original game because, like, why have this whole bit with the character running around trying to get anti-venom when it doesn't serve a purpose. And I don't think she was wanting to add another character to the mix who doesn't exist. You know what I mean? So I can see them having Richard, why they had Richard, why she had Richard just kind of be a corpse. In the game. You don't really learn anything about him in the book. You don't really learn anything about him in the game. You get a little bit more out of him in the remake. Seems like a nice guy. He gives you a radio. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, you're going through these, this team and like I don't remember any of them. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> like some of it's coming to me from the game, but I don't remember any of these people in the book. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I think the last member of Bravo um, is Kenneth, uh, who is the first victim you find eaten by a zombie. It happens. It's the same in the book. They find him 
half eaten by a That's zombie. That's the dude in the hallway, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, the black guy who's like bit his head ripped off or something. Yeah. yeah, you don't learn any I mean I don't know anything about Kenneth. I mean if I'm being honest, you don't you don't learn anything about him in the game or the or the book. He has no head. He's a guy yeah. who's on the team. Yeah. Who's they seem to like. <laughs> So, um, that's maybe Bravo that's team. All, maybe that's all you need to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about the two characters who are only featured in the book real quick. Yes. First one is Billy Rabbitson, who is, uh, we talked about him before a little bit, uh, Chris's friend. Billy seems to, so Billy's actually from something else originally. Billy is sourced from another thing. There is a book that was only released in Japan that I believe came as a pre-order or a bonus with the Sega Saturn version of the game called The True Story Behind Biohazard. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So is this a nonfiction? Oh no. This is well. It's a nonfiction book, but it's also got a fiction piece in the book. Okay. That's a story about uh, Chris and his friend Billy before the mansion incident. This is where Stephanie Perry got Billy's character from. Now she, I don't know if she, the copy of the game she got had this as well, and she decided to incorporate it. But Billy's from that, and it's, he largely serves the same purpose. He's kind of the impetus for Chris to go. Something bigger is going on here than. Then meets the eye. Just a thought I'd throw that out there, that he is actually technically from something. He's not on a creation of hers. Uh, he does exist in a different uh, canon, I guess. Um, he never gets mentioned again in any of the games or anything else, but uh, that's Billy Rabbitson. I think he's just here basically to add to... I mean, the, the title of the book is The Umbrella the Conspiracy. conspiracy yeah. <laughs> and so. I think you needed to flesh that out. Yeah. Uh, you can't just have characters reading files in the book. That's not terribly exciting. For no. they, she has it, and I think it's great that she's able to incorporate that. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about how she she really does a great job of taking a, a game that is basically a series of puzzles and notes you read throughout the course of the game and turning it into a book, but somehow still incorporating those puzzles. And like, I love that she incorporates the wind crest and all that stuff. It's great. Yeah. I love that. We're going to get into an the... object and a yeah. goal. We'll get into that plot. But, right. Cause yeah, I do want to mention. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, but I, but I think that it's fun that she's able to expand on that and use the Billy character to expand on that. For sure. The other character she adds that is her creation is Trent, who is a character who pops up early on, uh, during Jill's, uh, pre-mansion bits and kind of gives her a uh, kind of a person what, what were those old a palm pilot type thing <coughs> like a palm pilot yeah I was say yeah and it's got like maps on it and kind of weird puzzly diagrams on it and stuff and as it turns out it's kind of like in the game you can access your map and stuff and it's kind of that's what Trent gives her so she finds uh, the, the author finds a way to make that part of the And that's story. the only part he's in the book, right? Is that early part? But so then he continues throughout like her series, if I Yes, he is correct. he's the overarching character. He's kind of uh, He's like a guiding hand. He's like the Nick Fury. Like okay. Nick Fury pops when all those movies, right? Like the Marvel movies. Yes. He's like that for these books where he's always showing up somewhere. Yes. Um and I did kind of like, you know, good for her for like thinking about, hey, where did she get these maps? Like in the game, perfect <laughs> then, example, right? Yeah, and then you know, springing a character that could go throughout different books, yeah, kind of, it was yeah, pretty slick. I kind of like that. Yeah, that's that's clever. Yeah, and you don't learn a lot about Trent's motivations. You just know he's shifty, and you know he's probably on the force of good because he's helping them out. But you don't really know. Um, and at the end, of course, we get a little bit of it's hinted a, that he's like an insider, right? With Umbrella, it seems like he works for Umbrella, but he wants them to go down, right? Yeah, like he's the he's like the anti Wesker in a lot of ways, right? Um, and then we get a little bit from Brad's perspective at the very end. I, I think it's the very end of the book. We get a little POV from Brad, and he mentions that he was contacted by a Trent on the radio to give him the coordinates to the mansion. 
So he's like, oh, I'll tell him later, you know, and I like that little bit too because it ties the Trent thing. Just as you start to forget about Trent a little bit, it ties it back in and you're like, oh, what's, what's his deal? And Trent continues on in these books. So if you like this book and you like Trent, uh, he's very, very important to the, uh, the Underworld book. I think he's okay. the lead character in Underworld. Okay. Um, so, um, I think that's it for characters. Do we want to talk creatures briefly at all? Is there anything the you want to talk about creature-wise? The only thing I want to mention there is because um, Richard is, he dies from the snake bite. Yes. And I think you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. That means they kind of cut out one of the battles in the, yes. in from the game. So a you chunk fight of the snake twice in the game. Yeah, in the yeah. game you fight the snake twice. In the book there's only one snake battle mm-hmm. and which makes sense. I mean cuz you don't you don't need it. Twice. You don't need it. You don't need it in the book. You got to keep it moving and it's uh, yeah. So you're trying to get to the finish line too. So that is the only thing really I mean the creatures are all described yep. well. That's kind of the thing yep. with books is that's what that's what books give you is that idea of description the issue. Yeah. A lot of the time with books though if you're reading a book it's you don't know what the thing looks like. You have to create it in your own head. This, you know what it looks like from the game. So she's got to be pretty strident to that. She's got to be yeah. pretty, yeah. So pretty loyal to that. So and she is, and I think she does a good job of describing. Them. I think one of the things that she's able to do in the book that obviously you can't do in the game, which I really enjoyed, is you've got some POVs from a guy who knows these creatures kind of intimately, Wesker, um, who knows the backstory of them a little bit and knows how dangerous they are. And so usually before you meet said creature, like the hunters or the chimeras later on, or even the tyrant, you already have this sense of kind of foreshadowing of how much of a problem these things are going to be to face. You know what I mean? Like, because Wesker's like, oh, shit, I hope they aren't loose. That's going to be a problem. Right. You know, so you're like, oh, well, if Wesker's nervous, then... Um, so yeah, I, I like all the creatures. And, and, and they, it's... Uh, I will say she makes the crows more threatening in the book. They're actually really scary. <laughs> yeah, the, now that you bring that up, I remember that. In the yeah. movie, they're, or in the in the game, they're kind of silly. I'm like, okay, they're flying crows. Well, in the crows. movie, they come from Mike Epps, if I recall. They do come from Mike yeah. Epps. <laughs> um, but uh, in the book, they are a little threatening. They, she, the way she writes them and, and kind of Chris's realization of, holy shit, I didn't pay attention to these birds. They're all about to attack me. I like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, 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 we mostly talked about how the plot's pretty much the same. There are obviously some expanded character bits and stuff like that. I do, I want to go back though to what we were just talking about just a minute ago about how, do, how she chose to adapt a game into a novel. Because that's what we're here for in the long run, right? Is to talk mm-hmm. about how this works in its two forms. Um, and I really, I, I you know, is this like top tier? Is this book top tier reading material? No, it's not. No, this is not great I mean, literature. This is, no, it's yeah. not great literature. It's yeah. pulpy, and it's yeah. it's a it's very much written for teenagers, as you said. It's not poorly written by any means. No, I didn't mean it as a slight. I just meant it's not aspiring to be no. the grapes of wrath. <laughs> it's written yeah. in much the same way. A lot of those, uh, like the Star Trek tie-in books, would be written. They're very simple, and straightforward, and they they take the characters you like on adventures you like and. You're done with it within it, a few hundred pages. And the other thing with an adaptation, too, because this is a novelization, it's a, an adaptation. This is not, like you mentioned, an expanded universe. So you really, are, yeah. Yeah, you are in this to, you want to see the game, or yes. you want to read the game. You want to do exactly what this book does, yeah. which is basically tell the basic story of the game, and then add a few character details. Yeah, let you it. relive the experience you enjoyed during the game, but with a little bit of an expanded from a different viewpoint. Right. You get to learn a little bit about the people you are playing as. Sure. Because that's one of the things about particularly this game and a lot of the earlier games is when you're playing, and it's kind of the, it's 
a plus and a minus, I guess, is you don't have a backstory, so you can create your own backstory in your head for these people. The issue is I never do that because with the game, it's so immediate, it's so immersive. Like, I'm just in it. You don't care about that. No, a lot of times I skip the story parts sometimes with these older games. I I didn't with this one, but you can if you want. You can control the pace of a video game if you want. I tend to watch them, but the, the other issue with the plot in video games for me personally is... A lot of the time when the plot kicks in or those cutscenes kicks in, it's after a kind of a level or a sequence where I'm kind of exhausted <laughs> from like trying to beat yep. it that I just, as there are times when I zone out during the plot of a game. So yeah. that's kind of the the plus and the minus is you get to create your own backstory a lot of the time for a video game, but sometimes you don't do it. And that's kind of what the novelization is here for. You are, you're active in one, you're passive in the other, but there's, there are advantages and disadvantages to both of those. For sure. And I, I, I want to, um, I, what I, what I love, like I said, this is not, what do you say? This is not the grapes of wrath. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. This is not like top tier fiction, but what I love about what I really think that she should be applauded for is the fact that she is able to take, these very video gamey elements, and they're very video gamey. I love them in the game, but it's a game. Uh, your your themed keys, you know, your knight key and your armor key and your helmet key and all this stuff. The silly Resident Evil puzzly stuff, or the you know, you got to switch out the shotgun with the broken shotgun, or you got to find the wind crest, the star crest, and the sun crest to open this. That shit is silly, but it's very video gamey and it's very fun when you're in the world of the game doing it. It's hard to translate that into a narrative form, whether it be in this case, a book or even a movie or anything. There's a reason why the movies have never had puzzles. It's probably like people don't want to watch that. It's not, but she does a great job, I think, in the book of making because she makes those a goal for all of our characters. She first makes them a goal for Wesker because Wesker's got to get down to those labs to destroy the evidence, right? And then because of Wesker looking for them and his manipulations and stuff, which are fun, the other characters now are trying to find these these crests and stuff to get out of the the house. And you have the added element of Trent's uh, Palm Pilot thingy, which is mentioning, like, you need to find these keys and this, that. So you know, you're always, you always remember what the goals are. Um, you're constantly reminded, okay, they need to get this to get out of the house. And I, love, I think it's great. I think it's actually kind of brilliant that she was able to find a way to make that compelling in a book um, or make you interested enough in them to finding these crests. Like... Well, we talked about this too a little bit in our Lost uh, Silent Hill episode yeah. for Horror Movie Yearbook, but part of the thing is you, you're a fan of the game. You kind of want to see these sequences from the game, and honestly, sometimes you kind of want to feel like you're watching a walkthrough. Yeah. You kind of want to feel like you want to see these moments from the sure. game, and same thing with a book. I mean, you want to... The thing with the book, though, is you want to be able to kind of... You kind of want to be able to get caught up in it. You want to be yeah. told this story, and you want to transport yourself to like you are one of these characters yeah and so you want to be able and you want to have that story told i think she does a very good job of like you said uh tying those quests in tying those different things in yeah the other thing i think she does a very good job of is i really like the descriptions in this book particularly yeah, of yeah. the mansion. So cuz when you're playing a video game it's very much like watching a movie you visually you see it visually but you you don't necessarily Video games and book kind of, you, you move at your own pace, but you don't get the time to take it all in. Well, and, and, and there's things that she can do in the written word that you can't do in a game. And right. I think she makes great use of the sense of smell 
like the smells of the mansion. Yes. And the the temperature is something that she goes back to a lot. How cold the mansion is. Like like how oppressively cold it is inside the mansion. I love that, that yeah. stuff. Um, it was huge. E- easily bigger than Jill's house. Tiled in gray, flecked marble, and dominated by a wall. Uh, dominated by a wide carpeted staircase that led to a second floor um, balcony. Arched marble pillars lined the ornate hall, supporting the dark, heavy wood balustrade of the upper floor. Fluted wall sconces cast funnels of light across the walls of cream trimmed in oak and offset by the deep burnt ochre of the carpeting. Like, I think that's it's, like, that sets yeah. the mood for you. You get that feel. You can smell that. You can yes. visualize that. And that's kind of, you kind of miss that in a game because you are so focused on those goals and those rules and those objectives. You don't, that's the advantage a lot of the times too. Yeah. reading a book is you can, you can kind of transport yourself to that place using the power of words. So yeah, and it works. I think largely. I think that her right. descriptions are very solid, both of the monsters and the settings and everything. Um, thematically, I mean, if, if there's a theme for, if there's a theme for the for the original game, it's just survival. I think is is you is is that's the theme of the game. It's survival horror for right. a reason. It's called that for a reason. The, the the theme of the game is is to get out alive. Do you discover these things about the umbrella? company and stuff like that in the plot of course but i think the book that the theme is more about conspiracy and about uh, uh malfeasance and all that stuff corporate malfeasance i think that that's certainly so they're telling the same story but i think that there's definitely a different focus there the game is all about you getting your character the hell out of there and surviving and and, and lasting through the the things the game is throwing at you that is in the book certainly but the, the book is definitely more focused on that that conspiracy angle and that uh, that espionage and that corporate uh, corporate greed and all that, and which I think I think both work. You know, um, in either medium, I think they both work, um, and they both work together. So, um, agreed. Any last thoughts about either the game or the book? Is there anything you want to we haven't talked about that you want to dig into a little bit? Um, I mean, we touched. Are we doing the pros and cons? Like, yeah, let's yeah. talk about. So, so I mean. The book like certainly has, like an, has an edge. The book certainly has an edge in terms of its characterization, and that's always going to be the case. I mean, the, the characters are more well-rounded. You get more, spend more time with them. You get to hear their inner thoughts. There's no question that the book has a, does a better job of painting a who these people are. Characterization, uh, yeah. Arguably, I'd argue that maybe Wesker is a little more fun in the game because you really don't get a lot of him at all. So you're wondering what his real motivations are. You know, he's he's a bad guy, and you know he's uh, in the book. He's He's not terribly threatening by the end of the book. You're kind of like, God, calm down, dork. Like, <laughs> so he's he's a little bit, uh, he's a little bit of a dunderhead in the book. He well, yes and no, I guess he is inconsistent like that. Yeah, that's sometimes thing, he yeah. feels like a moron. Uh, he's better in the game because it's one of those like addition by subtraction things. Yeah. Like he's better in the game because you don't see him as much. Yeah, like he's, he's more not, of an enigma. In he's the, more of an enigma. Yeah. He just kind of jumps around. The book you like know too much about Wesker. Almost. Yeah, yeah you know too much about Wesker, and it's to the point where he becomes inconsistent as a character for me. Like, yeah. so <laughs> that's the one character where I'd say I, I prefer the game version. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. Sometimes it is. Yep. But uh, overall, that I think that they that the book does a better job certainly of characterization. Um, I mean, it, you know, in terms of scares, certainly the game is the, is the, is, is so the here's, better, right? Yeah. So here's the, th- yeah. So we'll talk a little, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the tough thing about this is it's, it's an adaptation of the game Yeah. and the game is a very simple story. The fun of the game is 
going around being immersed that first person yeah. idea like you are in the game what's around that corner yeah what's around this corner like what's, what's in this locked door what's in yeah. the locked door what like, horrible puzzle am i gonna have to solve <laughs> or get killed by is there yeah. a liquor here is there a is there a snake yeah, here right. um that's the fun and it's that kind of that immersive experience it's like a haunted house yes it's it's a very it's similar an interactive to, haunted it's house, an interactive yeah. haunted house you get caught up in it books are different <laughs> books books scare you in different ways it's tougher to do a jump scare in a book yes and because this is a straightforward adaptation it needs to stick to the rules yeah. of the game it needs to follow that plot it can't get too deep into other things or it's the part of what's scary about like a Stephen King book is the kind of ideas he puts down on yeah. the page that you right. like you that you think about and you process and you go oh no I don't want to think about that anymore yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, that's a different type of scare than what's in the video game so for me the video game is much scarier this is yeah this is more of a comic book kind of pulpy yeah novel I think oh I mean uh, you know it's tough to do pros and cons of the game versus a book they're so different but it's less about pros and cons and I think if you're if you're talking about which one is the better version of this story being told I mean if I had to if I had to pick one it certainly be the game I mean the game is the way that the story feels at its best in terms of being told but I'll say this I think this book works very well if you enjoy the world of the game and you enjoyed your experience playing the game and you want some supplemental uh, backstory and maybe a little more meat to the plot of the game, I think the book does a fine job of that. It's like a, it's like a, like a, um, what am I thinking here? Like a character guide or like it's a like game a, like guide. It's like a, one of those old Prima game strategy guides where right. they give you a real good character breakdowns, but it's done in a narrative format, which makes it a little more interesting. Right. Yeah. I would so, agree. I yeah. enjoy them both. I mean, the, the, the game is certainly the preferred version if I have to pick one. But I think they both do a good job. I really, I really must say, once again, it ain't classic literature. But I think she does a very good job of translating something that I don't think is terribly easy to translate. Uh, she could have just wrote out all the puzzles and stuff all together, and she made sure she kept that shit in the book. Yes, and bravo to her for doing it. So you would have, I guess, to ask you, you would have preferred for a movie adaptation to be something similar to the book. I think the you way- could turn this book into a movie; it'd be right. fine. Right. I mean, you would have to, yeah, you would have to streamline it in some yeah, ways. Yeah, you'd have to cut some things here and there or streamline certain things. But I, I, shit, I think you could make somehow manage to make the like a puzzle or two work. But you do have a first act, a second act, and a third yeah. act in this book that would work. It's not a bad a outline for structure. something that could be a movie. Yeah, I agree. Okay. For sure, no question. So, um, awesome, man. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for sitting down and talking with me about yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I always, I always got I read that book once every couple of years because I just have fun with it. I just enjoy being in the mansion. So, yeah. um, as far as a review for someone who's maybe a little bit more casual or Resident Evil fan, I will say this: I a lot of the stuff I liked was like pointing at it and going, "Oh, that's from the game. Yeah, that's neat." It does get a little bit; it kind of rushes to the finish line, and I was ready to rush. It does to the rush finish. the finish line, and I, but I was ready to do it anyway because I was. It was getting like, okay, that is from the game. Like, let's move it along. And you can tell she's ready to go too. <laughs> yes, because she's like, "God damn, I just finished the man. Now I got to write about this." This greenhouse, like I don't want to do right, that. and uh, you know what? Reading inter- her, the interviews I read with her, I give her a ton of credit because she was not giving anything to work with by yeah. Capcom at the time. So good on her for being able to do this, and and you know what? I good on her. She was good at this. I, she doesn't do it anymore. I think she stopped writing. Um, judging by our Wikipedia page, but I was I was looking at the Deep Space Nine novels. I always kind of dug those too. Yeah. So she has a she has a groove and. She's, she's just, a fan in you as well. Yeah, she had, and like she's she found her groove and she was able to write some write some fun stuff with it. Sweet. So cool, man. Um, so let me see here. I it, let's mention uh, 
A, where everybody can find us once again. Please send us feedback. Uh, multimediumpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at multimediumpod. Yeah. We're also on Facebook. Uh, get a hold of us any of those ways. Give us some ideas, uh, feedback, any of that stuff. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, as for where you can, if you haven't already and you're listening to this and you'd like to read Resident Evil The Umbrella Conspiracy, it is available on Amazon uh, with prime shipping for like eight bucks for the paperback. If you have a Kindle too, I think it's like three bucks on Kindle. There you go. Yep. Yep. As far as the uh, the game, um, like I said, it's available on all of the major, uh, not the brand new systems, I don't think, but the last PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can buy it digitally or physically, um, either way. So. Yeah, I think so. Um, awesome, man. So what are we going to be doing next time on Multimedia? What's our next, our, our next topic? You want, we're going to try to, we're trying to mix things up early on so we don't get caught in a, like, book to movie, movie to book, stuff like that. So I think we're going to try to do Clue, right? Yeah, is, I think the idea next, is to do Clue. And then we're going to do, we think we're going to, I want to give people a heads up. I think we're going to do Jurassic Park after that. Yeah, give book people to time movie. to read. Right. So, and give us time to read. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the next the next episode of Multimedium, which um, I, I don't have, we don't have a release date for it by any means. We're, 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 we're being very loose with our, we're yes. going to try to get you guys an episode monthly. That's kind of where we're at, I think. Yeah. Uh, and we're, it's going to be a little bit, we released that pilot episode, quote unquote, pilot episode, that Turtles episode, and we took a little bit off, but. A lot of that. Some of it's been COVID stuff. Circumstances yeah. have yeah not worked in our favor in some ways. This is not an easy. I think horror movie yearbook for us has been easier to record uh, remotely yeah. based on the way the show flows and how long we've been doing it. This is tough to do remotely, or I'm worried it's not gonna. It's gonna be tougher to do remotely. Right. So uh, if we take a little longer than a, than than a month or so from now, then right. bear with us. Um, hopefully, you're enjoying what we're doing. But yeah. Next time is going to be uh, we're going to be talking about Clue the board game and Clue the movie because how the hell do you turn a board game into a movie? How does that happen? We're about to, yeah, we're do about they to do it right? <laughs> is it good? I don't know. We'll see. It's been a while. Have since you seen, seen Clue? I no? have seen Clue. It's been a long time, so okay. I guess we'll see how I feel about it now. And I, it's been even longer since I've played the game. So uh, I think I've got a. I hope I've got a. I don't know if I don't have a copy, I'll buy a cheap copy. But um, yes, yeah, so we'll be doing that. And then um, the tentative. Clue, Clue is for sure our next episode, but the tentative plan for the following episode is doing uh, Jurassic Park, the book and the movie. And now, you might think, and we would agree, that doing books to movies is pretty easy, pretty go-to. Uh, like Tim mentioned, we don't just want to be doing that. But I think that there is a, I think that the difference between the book and the movie, uh, not just in terms of the plot, because that's easy to talk about, but in terms of how the two stories were like, what the two stories are trying to do they're completely different they couldn't right. be more different but in my mind i don't think they they could be any more successful in their formats than they are they're just very very satisfying stories in their own ways and we could talk about spielberg which is fun yeah we have, i don't know if you and i have ever ever talked about spielberg together any in the history of our podca- podcast yeah so that's gonna be fun <laughs> um but yeah thank you guys for joining us please join us next time send us feedback we'd love to hear from you and uh it's been fun tim 